Welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. Before we get to the episode, I want to let you know that our wonderful contributor, Liz Richards, created a Zazzle store for Maximu where you can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. Sayings like, my views are my own, and, well, I'm glad I saw it. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality, so please check it out. We have a very full episode today discussing the latest shows we've seen at the theater in New York City. Enjoy the show. And my problem with drinks at shows is like they're, they're really overpriced and they're not strong enough. Yeah, I mean... It's like, if I'm paying $10 for a cocktail, like I need to be re- feeling really happy. At LCT3, I think it's $15 for one of those like half-size oh, cups. God. And it's a take-a-home souvenir cup, right? Yes. Fantastic. Like a roundabout, yeah. But the drinks aren't... But you're basically paying for the cup because you're not paying to get drunk off of that. Right. And then it just encourages people to have like noisy ice cubes in the theater. Yeah. Ice cubes should be banned from the theater. (laughs) Why do theaters allow ice cubes? Really? Why don't they just super chill their drinks? Like Or or, super chill the cup. Right. That's what most people do in bars. There's a million solutions, none are being implemented. The last two times I've been to Playwrights Horizons, I've had ice cube issues with other patrons. What did you do? I mean, what can you do? The theater literally gave them those ice cubes. You can't tell them to shut up. They have every right to be there. I, I, I think there's no solution. I think the solution is to only go to plays that are set in bars because then it's atmospheric sound design. <laughs> At Daphne's Dive, your clinky ice cubes fit right in. Okay, let's do introductions. David. Hi, this is David Levy. Uh, this week in... Uh, Gosh, I don't know where I'm from. Uh, you wow. can find everything you need to know about me at itsdelevy.me. Perfect. Deep? Hi, I'm Deep Tran, associate editor at American Theatre Magazine. My voice is awesome right now because I went to the Beyonce concert on Wednesday of this week and I screamed way too much hmm. and I have a cold. So it, it's just great. It's, it's super a, sexy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I try. All right, it's Lindsay. I'm here every week. So we're going to talk about some shows we've seen recently. Let's get started with War. David. War is at LCT3 at Lincoln Center, and it is a new play by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, uh, who you might remember from Gloria and An Octoroon and Appropriate, um, and Neighbors, but we didn't talk about that one on the podcast. <laughs> um, and Where was Neighbors at? That was at The Public. Oh, oh that's a while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was his very first yep, one. Yep, yep. It didn't get good reviews. Um, and it is a show about uh, a family in crisis when their mother has a stroke, two siblings who have uh, sort of a shaky relationship both with each other and with their mother um, descend on the hospital room to figure out what to do. And when they get there, there's a woman they've never seen speaking a language that they don't know, uh, who apparently was with their mother when she collapsed. And the rest of the play is about figuring out who this woman is, what her connection is to the family, and then what to do about those things when they are revealed. How's that for a spoiler-free synopsis? I know we're going to talk about spoilers now, but I like to at least yeah, start no, with that. Yeah, that was a great synopsis. Okay. Spoiler-free. Um, so at this play, I guess when I think about a Brandon Jacobs Jenkins play, I assume that it's going to be a play that has at least one sort of big idea that motivates it and at least one big moment of meta-theatricality. And in this play, I think, for me, the big idea was a question of what does it mean 
to need people and and what does it mean to need people in a family um and uh, you know a big part of this show is the mother who's played by charlene woodward sort of within the cage of her mind as she is suffering from the stroke trying to figure out who needs her to to survive and to come back from the stroke um meanwhile we have these strangers who it turns out uh is a, a woman who is her half sister from her uh, father's wartime fling in Germany, um, who is at the early stages of Alzheimer's, who needs her um, to help finance her care as as her condition worsens, um, and this woman's son, who is a working class German man, who uh, doesn't have any of the any of the advantages that. Uh, that the main family has had because they uh, they inherited the wealth that um, the grandfather had left behind. Um, we have these two children who each sort of need support in a different way, or maybe not. Um, the son who insists he is very uh, together and can take care of himself, and he's very self-sufficient, but we learn that he uh, has just been through a bad breakup and is sort of reeling from that, but unwilling to admit that he that he needs support or help from that and the daughter who uh has tried to break free of the the like success track laid out by this family and what that means for her and her husband and their daughter um and and at the end of the play this sort of suggests there's a suggestion that maybe need is not actually the right frame for a family to relate to each other at all uh which i thought was an interesting interesting place to arrive at although it kind of came not out of nowhere but the so the the meta theatricality moment is that when in addition to charlene woodard speaking from from within her stroke at a certain point the character dies and then she sort of crosses through the fourth wall and sits in the audience and um becomes one of us with the implication that we're all sort of the dead watching the living um and after she dies, the the German sister just gives this big long speech in German, uh, translated by the character who's her son. Uh, that sort of is like, and here's what all of you should be thinking to the rest of the characters, and they all say okay. And then there's an epilogue where they're all like happily at the zoo together. And look, it it worked for me, and I cried, and I felt like I learned something, but I also felt like it was not successful playwriting. So that's that's where I'm at with war. Deep. I do agree with you, David. There's like a kind of unresolvedness to it, because I feel like Brandon was playing with a, a couple different ideas in this play. Or for one, I think it's his most um, quote-unquote traditional play because it's very, for the most part, aside from the uh, stroke scenes where the character is um, talking with gorillas, they're talking gorillas in this play, everybody, hence the um, art. And... Like the rest of it's like a very naturalistic. We're just a family in crisis, yelling at each other, and but at the same time, there is also I think he's also exploring uh, this is this issue of privilege, but from from the point of view of a black man living in the in the United States who ha, who has inherited wealth in opposition to his family members in Germany where who are who are half black and they're ostracized because of that they they talk a lot about how the half german sister like she was um 
she was considered lesser than or was really abused when she was younger because because of her heritage and so there's that aspect of it and then there's also the aspect between um my God, I don't remember anybody's names at this point. <laughs> the, the son of Sh Charlene, <laughs> uh, Chris Myers. Oh yeah, who's an Octoroon? Yeah, Tate. Oh yeah, yeah. So Tate and jo the characters of Tate and Joanne, her, her, her children, like Tate is a very successful you know, political consultant in, in opposition to a sister who has decided to forego all of that and just become a yoga instructor. And then there's this really, what, what really, the part that really moved me aside from the speech about motherhood was when he was talking to her about how could you, like you have, an, you have a responsibility to to, towards your race to, to achieve. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm gesticulating as much as I can in this in this context, and it's not working out very well for me. Sorry, Deep was hitting the table, and I just pointed at her to, so it didn't interrupt the recording. And now it's gotten far worse than I ever imagined. <laughs> sorry. Edit. <laughs> <laughs> but you're on a roll. But it was so great. And then, but then I was sorry. worried about well, the recording. I feel like it's sorry. So I feel like I hope can't. so. Sorry, audience. Okay, sorry, please that was great. continue. That was please great. Continue. So you know, you have this one side of, you know, we're 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 still a minority, an oppressed minority, and so any achievement from any of us is. And with the resources that we have, like you have an obligation to use all of those things in order to better your race. And then, and then the sister, on the other hand, is very much like, why do I have this obligation? Because no one else does, but somehow because I'm a black woman, like I need to do better. And so there's all the, these really intense conversations that don't really seem to tie into one, one another, but on their own, they're really the really thought-provoking and something that I'm really glad that is being explored. At the same time, it really didn't coalesce into a fully formed, you know, coherent from beginning to end work. And I'm still really confused about the gorillas, guys. I, I don't, I still don't know what to make of that. Besides the fact that we're, we're animals, maybe. Well, so, so so in the context of the story, the gorillas feature in beyond just in her mind. So um, when. I don't think we should spoil the meaning of the gorillas. Okay, but just say that it's not totally random that she's speaking to gorillas when she's in... Right, there are two ways in which stories featuring gorillas are weaved into the story right. and, and are an uh, explanation for why when this woman who's in a coma having had a stroke, um, when she's having her scenes, which are the sort of fantastical dream sequences in a way I would call them... Um, all the other characters in the, all the other actors in the play are uh, are pl play primates, gorillas or monkeys. Um, um, I think varying kinds of primates is how I, I would think, describe that. I thought that. it was all gorillas. I, I thought it was like nurse, a den of gorillas. I thought the nurse was definitely a gorilla, but I didn't think that the behavior of the... I mean, I thought I the I'm noises not, they were making were monkey noises, but their physicality was gorilla physicality. See, I didn't think that for all the people <laughs> on the stage, uh -huh. but maybe some of them were just better at doing that physicality than others. Mm. It's also interesting that one of the two other places where primates enter the picture, they're talked about as monkeys, and the other place exactly. they're talked about as gorillas. Exactly. So that's why I thought there were different kinds. Mm. But I think this conversation is very interesting in 
that. David, you mentioned the theme of the play being what does it mean to need people deep. You mentioned the play, the sort of theme of the play is this, um, like these strands of privilege. And I actually had a totally different interpretation of the theme of the play, which is that how do people handle situations where decisions or actions by people in the past affect uh, you currently, which is, is it, one of those themes is definitely privilege, but one of them, and the one that was the strongest for me was um, mistakes. And I think that for me, when I saw this, it was just so in tune with other of Brandon's plays that I've mm -hmm. seen. And it made me wonder if, if this is actually the theme that unites all of Brandon's plays. Huh. Is this like impact of the past on the present? Um, which can be both both mm -hmm. societal, um, the, you know, obviously the racial strife that we've had in this country, which is a very strong theme in all, all to date that I've seen of Brandon's place, um, but also the intensely personal, how this father was abroad and fathered a child and how that impacted that child, but now in present day, how it's impacting this family who had no knowledge of this person's existence previously and how um, there was a question of whether to divide the inheritance. Um, and, and that's sort of one of the central uh, questions of the play that um, you know doesn't get answered till the final scene. And I agree with you, David, that that little twist at the end where that it, question is resolved, just like it didn't really make sense to me. I wasn't propelled to that conclusion by the speech that 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 woman gave. Right, and like, and the speech just felt very like, all right, we've listened to you argue for an hour and a half, and now I'm going to tell you the answer. Uh huh. Which like. I mean, that's as privileged as the playwright, but I, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, but I really don't think, like, one of the central, like, one of the central questions that the characters were grappling with was a c issue of the inher the monetary inheritance, because it, it was brought up a couple of times, but I really don't think that was why, I, for, on Brandon's part, like, I don't really think that was a central conflict. I think it was very much like, you know, discovering your your grandfather had the second life that you knew nothing about and all those you know typical secrets are revealed in these kind of works okay so this is when i need to make my one big complaint about the dramaturgy of this play <laughs> yeah this almost the entire play takes place in a hospital one of the main conflicts in the play is about whether or not these people are actually related and not once does anyone even suggest doing a blood test <laughs> I, I just that I, I just don't understand that I guess. I don't know. That didn't really bother me. But oh, that God. Didn't bother it bothered me, it bothered me a lot. Um, but I, on the one hand, agree with you, Deep. On the other hand, I think that the money question, the inheritance question, was really representative of the larger question at stake. But it was the mm -hmm. way, it was the concrete issue they were dealing with to signify the, the, the conflict they were having and meeting this person and how this person was going to impact their lives going forward. Anything else to add on this one? Uh, only that... Um, I happened to see this with someone who speaks German. Oh, um, interesting. So a couple tidbits that I picked up. One is that the word war, which is the title of the play, means was in German. So, like, he was. Uh, so this tie to the past is, very, I think, very conscious. And I think that was a very carefully selected thing. Because there's just one moment in the play where... Um, uh, afraid of the German woman starts, like, hyster like, hysterically just shouting the word war, 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 which... Um, which the rest, everyone gets confused, but that's in that sort of like that connection of like the past and the war that he fought in and, and the war that's happening in this hospital room. 
Um, and apparently the image that's being used for the poster, which is of a gorilla in a um, in an army helmet, is actual German propaganda from, I think, World War One. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Which, like, that. who would know? But then didn't the grandfather fight in World War Two? Yes. Okay. okay. And once again, it doesn't all tie together that well, <laughs> but the scenes are great on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to Taming of the Shrew. Deep. All right. Taming of the Shrew. Do I need to summarize Taming of the Shrew or does everyone already know? Can't hurt. Okay, sure. For, for those of you who aren't well-versed in theatrical historical misogyny, uh, <laughs> Taming of the Shrew is written by William Shakespeare. It's about two sisters. One's Kate and the other one is... What's the other one? What's Bianca. 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 The long A. And Kate, it, Kate is a shrew, very, very opinionated, disobedient, and their father says that if he cannot marry Kate off, then no, no one can marry Bianca. And there's a lot of people who really want to marry Bianca because she is the stereotypical form of femininity. And then there's this man who, who says he will marry Kate, his name's Petruccio, and he says he will marry her and tame her, make her, more, uh, make her a better wife, a more obedient wife. And he does that by, you know, not letting her sleep and starving her, and all kinds of great things. And in the end, she makes this big speech about women should be subservient to their husbands, because if not, it makes you ugly. That is the play, and Philida Lloyd's, um, who is a director, she's done an all-female version of Taming of the Shrew at Shakespeare in the Park, and she does it in a really interesting way. It starts, the framing device is a beauty pageant. And all of these different women like exhi- exhibit their talents, and then Kate refuses to. And then towards the, and then it's also it's also cut. The, they also trimmed the play quite a bit, and it's now an hour and fifty. And there, there's a, the the first glimpsed I got that this that I wasn't supposed to be taking this seriously because towards the first half I was very uncomfortable because as any modern woman watching Taming of the Shrew is a very uncomfortable experience and you mm-hmm. don't really want to do it so why do people still put it on display but that's another topic um, <laughs> so the first in so the first sign that I got that this wasn't um, I that this wasn't normal was who is her name Judy Gold who's a comedian oh, she played Grimio she played Grimio and at, at one point, her character is supposed to have this speech before uh, Kate's wedding. And she basically comes out on the stage and she, she says, I'm supposed to give you, give you the speech right now, but it's really boring, so I'm not going to. And so she does like this five-minute stand-up bit where she talks about, you know, how a woman's going to be present and about modern feminist issues. And it's really funny and awesome. And then we get to the rest of the play. So basically, it is a taming, but it's filtered through a, ver- through a subversive feminist slant where it's not so much telling women what they're supposed to be like but telling women like this is what society expects of you and it's really fucked so that yeah it's not that profound but if you're gonna do taming you should probably you know go that route or go like a brand jacob jenkins octoroon route which is basically just like tear the, the whole thing apart so that the audience knows they're not supposed to be taking that the message that shakespeare intended from the play that they're watching because there's just really there's just no real way to do this pl- 
play without coming off as a total misogynist, which is why Oscar Eustace in the intro to the play in the Playbill says, I'm never directed Taming at the Public because it's a really horrible play and I don't really know why you would do it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Or something like, I'm paraphrasing. I'm yeah. No, it's that he's directed every major Shakespeare play except for Shrew. Except for Shrew and yeah. what? No, and, and then uh, there are three. And Henry the Fourth, Henry the Sixth, and King John. Right, which, which he claims are not majors. You know. Nice. Um, did you? So at the end of the day, did you think it worked? I think it worked as well as it could have. Because I didn't. <laughs> the thing is, like, it's really hard to make the play work in in a mo- in a twenty first century lens. You just can't do it. I think they did the best that they could have with the all female cast and with, you know, towards the end. Like Kate wins the quote unquote beauty pageant, and then she dis- and then she realizes, oh shit, I said all this really horrible stuff, and starts like tearing at her dress and yelling like she did at the beginning of the play, and then she kind of gets uh, ushered off the stage, and then her sister Bianca wins the beauty pageant because she's a stereotypical female. So there's there's that set. Oh, and also the person hosting the beauty pageant is a is Donald Trump like. Right. Which was interesting, but it it was fine. I mean, I enjoyed it more than I would enjoy a normal production of Taming. That's an interesting which, way to measure it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, for me, I thought the framing device didn't hold together. I mean, it doesn't. No. Right, and and the thing you didn't mention is that this whole place takes place on a set that's made to look like a traveling circus, but it is not ever. There's nothing circusy about it in any way. Like, there's nothing to imply that there's any thought behind the traveling circus. Like, I don't know why the beauty pageant is taking place on a circus. I'm not sure why any of this is taking place in a circus. Um, uh, yeah. I also, uh, among my issues of the play, so there's, there's two characters who have very similar names. There's Gramio, who is the Judy Gold character that we talked about. Then there's also Grumio, who is like the fool of the play, who is Petruccio's, Slave, excuse me, servant. But you wouldn't know because he's played like a minstrel show by a black actress named Stacy Sargent. Uh, and I just, I was so uncomfortable with the portrayal of this character. Um, it, it really felt like, like something from the 19th century. Like, just like it, it was like just all it needed was some quirk to be like totally there. And I don't know why that, I don't know why that performance got to the final version of this show. It, I don't know. Did, did that even... I mean, also, all of the servants were played by people of color. There were oh, yeah. other people of color in the play, yeah. too. Uh, but other, every servant was a person of color. Oh, yeah. An Asian woman played a dog. Right. I, yeah. I, I th- Thank you for bringing that up, because that was a second That was a second point. Granted, you can't do this show well, basically. But at the same time, I think it, what you're talking about kind of goes into my issues with classic revivals, which is they... They always tend to cast leads as black as uh, white people, and then they cast the servants or the villains as people of color. And then it really, it really stood out in this particular production because it's supposed to be feminine, like it's a feminist production. Mm-hmm. And so you think if it's, fe- uh, you think we'd all be in, you know, educated in, in intersectionality, <laughs> but we're not. <laughs> And so you're besides Kush Jumbo, who plays Kate, and I, is she is she mixed? Uh, she uh, I don't know what her ethnic I don't know what her is. ethnic background is, but certainly she plays she's, black characters all the time. Yeah, she's not Lily White, just saying. Uh, but besides her, all of the other p- people of color did play servants, and that's well, no, and we, K- and Kate's father is he a main character? 
Uh, I, I don't know how you define a main character or not. He's certainly not one of the leads, but he's not a servant. Yeah, yeah. Servants, side characters, yeah. you know, peripheral characters to the mostly white leads, aside from Ghost Jumbo. And then you, and then you just think, uh, why? Why? There's... Uh, if we're, if we're striving for equality, then shouldn't we be striving towards it for all women rather than certain women? But then again, Lindsay and I had the same discussion about the, um, what was that? Trevor Nunn's Pericles. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's also a weird thing going on mm. with this play about America, which I can't quite put my finger I on. I can't do it. I, yeah. But like the, so the, the beauty pageant part, they're all, it's all very red, white, and blue patriotic. Um, and then uh, I want to say that all of the male characters are portrayed as like very American archetypes. Like Patricia is played as sort of like, like a punk rocker, um, but almost, almost more like a kid rock country punk than like a, like I said, vicious type. And uh, there's people in cowboy hats. There's like the, the band, uh, and then yeah, and then Bianca's dressed up as a Southern Belle at some at one point. Yeah, and so, but it it, it was clearly saying something about specifically American like gender archetypes, but it wasn't quite whatever it was trying to say didn't quite come across to me. I don't know. I think it's really hard because you have this play that says one very particular thing, and then you're trying to put a modern slant on it but have it not set in Italy so have it set somewhere else and then you it's like it's like three concepts within one con- within one concept and yeah. it, it, it's it gets very unwieldy though David did you notice uh I, I is Janet McTeer is she um is she from the UK is she Scottish I, I believe she's originally from the UK but has lived in the United States for a significant amount of time yeah. her accent was going in and out for me the entire time and so I really couldn't figure out like what she was going for oh, I, I think that's just how she talks <laughs> interesting interesting I mean she was fine otherwise like I believe that she was a man but one once a once again, it was fine. They, they cut it. They cut it down to from three hours. I can't complain too much. <laughs> I, I did it's... like the freedom that they felt with the text. Like, I, mm-hmm. like it's one thing for them to cut, but the fact that they also felt totally comfortable augmenting it. Yeah, like it, for this for this play for this structure for this concept that worked. Like, I don't know that you know going to see Hamlet at Royal Shakespeare, you would want that. But but for this, it, I I really appreciated that as a as an approach. I haven't seen it yet. I'm I'm seeing it tomorrow, actually. So, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on the quasi feminism within. The well, it's interesting. I, I'm piece. also going to DC next week, Are and I'm kind of production? I, I I I kind of want to. I heard it's not very good. Oh really? Yeah. Well, it's like, do you like Duncan Sheik? I do not. I affirmatively do not like Duncan Sheik. Oh, you're going to hate this because the one we're talking about is The Taming of the Shrew at Shakespeare Theatre Company in D.C. Um, They're doing an all-male version and it's a Duncan Sheik jukebox musical. Yes, his early music. His (laughs) early music. There's a fantastic interview with uh, the director and um, on your podcast. Yes. Um, the American Theater Podcast. Is that what it's called? Uh, Off Script. Oh, Off Script from the American Theater Magazine, right? Yes. Um, and I listened to that interview and I thought it actually sounded really interesting. And one element, and I don't know if this is true because I haven't seen it, but the way Ed was talking about it is that it, it's an all male cast, which is fascinating. And it sounded like it had a much more sort of queer take on taming, yeah. which it's yeah. interesting to hear that um, this 
all female production doesn't sound like it's queer at all. It sounds like we have women playing men and right. and 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 women playing women, and it's still kind of in a heterosexual binary space. And they're and they're presenting themselves as very heterosexual. The men are very manly, and the women are kind of shrilly. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I really I I couldn't really tell if it was conceptual or if if it jived with the concept for me. I, it kind of didn't. Just like this overblown, like gender binary kind of style of acting. I don't know. Sorry. Well, we'll link to Rob's interview with Ed um, in yep. our show page because I, I actually thought that was a fantastic interview. I listened to the whole thing. Oh, that's good. Thank um, you. Meanwhile, if y'all want to watch Kiss Me Kate with me anytime. I hate that musical so much. It is so rapey. But is, but is there any way to make Taming of the Shrew not rapey, though? I don't know. I don't know. I, because like, at one point, like they get into, you know, the marriage bed, and then you're just thinking, she's really not consenting. She's definitely kind of, not consenting. Exactly. So it's kind of rapey. So we're, and we're kind of laughing at it, and that makes me really uncomfortable. I, I'm I mean, so uncomfortable. There are directors who've done versions of Taming of the Shrew where they make it clear that Kate is Kinda doing likes it. Well, no, is doing like a calculated thing where she's letting him feel like he's in control so that she can get out of the house, get control of the fortune and like, and get out of her sister's way. Uh, that is not going on in this production. Fascinating. All right, moving on. The next play we're going to talk about is hashtag liberated. Liz previewed this in our preview episode and we happened to have a free night when some tickets that I had got canceled. So David and I went. This is from The Living Room at IRT Theater. The Living Room is an ensemble of theater artists and I think this production is um, a devised project that this group has been working on for over the past several years. So the very recent title of the play um, Notwithstanding, I think this is actually a long-term project that this group is working on. It's an all-women's group, um, and the cast and creators are all women. It's conceived and scripted by Lillian Meredith and credited or created by the living room. That's the way it's phrased in the playbill. Um, so what this is is a group of women in Brooklyn, friends, who get together. Um, they have like a support group essentially for themselves. Um, the name of which. I'm going to, I actually did write down, I'm going to pause and look it up because it's kind of funny. Um, it's called the Sister Support Group for the Daily Trials of Being a Woman. Ooh. Wipe. I don't know, I don't, I don't actually. They never like, said what wipe stands for. I don't figure out how wipe fits into it, but that's like the whole name and then it ends with wipe and then they all do that thing where they like wipe their foreheads and scream. Um, and they get together and, uh, you know, they eat, take out, and they drink a lot of wine and they exercise and they, <laughs> talk about uh, the indignities that they have suffered over the course of the week um, at the hands of the misogynist culture. Um, and in the course of doing so, they start to talk about their sex lives and talk about how awful the world treats uh, women's sexuality. And uh, this leads to a conversation about porn, which leads to the idea that they should make their own uh, pro-feminist porn. Um, and that leads to a series of pretty funny skits where they enact their uh, sexual fantasies. And then somebody decides that they should post their uh, video to the internet, which uh, takes them on a serious roller coaster ride, as one might imagine. You know, I think um, this play is really interesting on really several levels. 
I loved the analysis of uh, women's sexuality and how it is so restricted and never discussed and uh, perverted in the porn world. I thought that was really smart and I thought that the potential was there to make something really special. Um, it was really funny at times. I actually was not expecting to hear so many laughs and um, it, it was really well received by the audience in that respect. There, I have some concerns <laughs> about the play, but I want to make sure that the group is being credited for addressing this issue, something we see, so, we see it talked about so little in culture writ large, so little in the theater. I think the issue of women and sex, like it just like it needs a spotlight. There needs to be more space to deal with it. Um, it reminded me a lot of a play that I saw at Fusebox that Jeremy and I discussed on a past episode of the podcast called Man Watching, where a well-respected female playwright wrote a monologue about her like sexual urges and her desires, um, but felt so uncomfortable with the content that she wrote it anonymously and has a man perform the monologue. I think there's a very interesting conversation between these two pieces. I'd love to see them performed in rep. I'd love to see an entire festival about women and sex. So I have, uh, I really, there, there are things to be praised here. I, I really, I, I think that they potentially have something very special. Can I just praise one more thing before yes, we get in? Go. I, I also thought that the, acting and direction of this production was really, really top-notch. And to the point where I... that it, It's hard when you have six people on stage who are almost always all on stage together mm -hmm. to not have it feel like, and then this one talks, and then this one talks, to the point where I, I sort of wondered if it was semi-improvised because it just felt... And, like, it felt so naturalistic and so real and so much like like this is actually sitting in these women's apartment with them and that really like really impressed me all right go on <laughs> okay so um the actors in this play all present themselves to be white um i there was i, I don't know their racial and ethnic backgrounds um but there's nothing to indicate that any of them weren't white and yet the play appropriates some element of culture from communities of color in ways that I thought was just not appropriate. I mean, what? let's start with the title, which is a hashtag popularized um, from a tweet slash Instagram post from Kim Kardashian, who is an Armenian American. Um, the play uses rap music throughout it. Um, in one sense, I think uh, that rap music is used to indicate the misogyny in our culture. Um, and in another time in the play, I think it is used to indicate these white presenting women as empowering themselves. There is another place in the play where in one of the rape fantasies, they break into a Bollywood dance. I think it is really, really harmful for a group of white presenting women to take these elements from communities of color and incorporate them both as the tools of oppression, as examples of tools of oppression against women, and also as their own tools of empowerment. I think that is very, very unfortunate in this play. So they're criticizing things like rap music in Bollywood for being misogynistic, but it's not. It's not. It's not white. quite that. No, no, they're not criticizing those things. Okay. Um, I mean, rap music becomes sort of a uh, like a shorthand for like misogynistic masculinity um, 
in the way that she, particularly when it's used as scene change music. Um, the Bollywood is more like when they're looking for ways to impart. Also, the Zumba, which oh, right. which is sort of like mention the exercise, right? Like the, every every time they get together, it starts with a like Zumba that they do sitting like with the help of a YouTube video. And Zumba is sort of like the prime example in like American culture at large of something that like white women have appropriated for their own uses from you know someone else's culture. Yeah, they're not using the Bollywood as an example of the oppression, they're incorporating it in their own fantasies in a way that, to me, exoticized and sexualized um, Indian culture in the same way that these women are critiquing porn for exoticizing and sexualizing women. There's also, again, none of the characters identify as queer in any way. but all of their fantasy, because part of the way that this porn thing works is that they're all appearing in the videos together. So you get this like big long montage of lesbian sex that is never like there's not so much as a mention of like the the closest we get is one of them saying that like I don't want to have sex with you because you're my friend. And like again, there's this way of like sort of bulldozing over difference because white women are at the top of or straight white women are at the top of this like pyramid of power even even though that pyramid itself is below other power structures that they're trying to criticize intersectionality it's a concept that people really need to start understanding yes i i think that um you know this play is not intersectional in any sense and i think if you want to have a play that is white straight women exploring sexuality from the perspective of white straight women, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But you can't then grab bag elements of other cultures to personify your oppression and or your empowerment. Like you can't just utilize those things willy nilly. Um, with no self-awareness. With no self-awareness. Was there self-awareness in the Zumba part? No. no. Oh, and okay. There's and And there's a... There's a second exercise routine that I would say is even more sort of blatantly, I, I don't know how to describe Like hip-hop this. dance? Is that? No, but the, the, they do the Zumba dance, and then they do this lat, uh, another Latin dance with, with what I would call like more traditional Latin music. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they do Latin music and Zumba, too. Yeah, but the first Zumba is more hip-hop-y music, yeah. um, and then the second one is what I would call like just like more traditional Latin music. It's still um, Zumba. It's all, it's all from the same genesis, but it's just like m- multiple levels of... And we had an interesting conversation on our way out of the theater about whether the script problems would have been fixed simply by having a multi-ethnic cast. And I'm not, I don't think we came up with a definitive yes or no. Like, I think it would have helped. I don't think it would have solved. I mean, there are multiple solutions here. Right. And I do think this has the potential to be something really special and great, but like there are elements that have to be fixed. Totally. Or they just need to make it really, really more specific to white, straight, female. Yes, exactly. Sexual that angst. is one possible solution. Because that's a solution. very particular kind of angst. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next, what were we talking about? Oh, Rising, David. Hey, uh, so we went to see the Rising, which is now closed. It is a 
production of the Flux Theater Ensemble. It was at the Access Theater Black Box, which is a theater I had never been to before. Me neither. Um, and it's a play written by Jason Seng, directed by Emily Hartford. Uh, that it's interesting. It started, according to author's notes, as sort of a science fiction metaphor for the AIDS crisis. Um, mm-hmm. In, in terms uh, told as a zombie story in the uh, uh, like a future zombie story um, where in this case zombies uh, are people suffering from a bloodborne disease vi- that spreads virally not not people risen from the dead but they're treated as though they are dead even though they continue to live um, and the story centers on a couple uh, one of whom is a doctor researching and treating the disease, and one of whom is someone who has the disease. Um, and sort of the implications of that. There's also so here. So before I actually go on to explain the plot, this is a play that has a lot of characters and a lot of story, and goes on for about three hours. And there was a lot I liked about it. But I felt like it either needed to focus in and into a taut 90 minutes or be a season of a television show because <laughs> every character had a relationship with every other character, some of which was surprised, some of it which was not. There's like three generations of history that we learn about. There's a lot of world building. Um, and uh, and it was uh, I, I, there was a lot that was really good about it, but it was just it was too much and not like, oh, my God, I love this. I want more of it too much. It was just like it was a little exhausting. Um, Deep and I are vigorously <laughs> shaking our heads in agreement. Um, but, you know, listen, it was a multi-ethnic cast. There were a lot of uh, queer relationships in it. Like, there, it got so much right in terms of, of you know, how to tell this kind of a story in a way that, that lots of different people could relate to. It just, it, it was like, um, it, it was, it was like, there was, it was just, it was just much go deep well it's ambitious i mean i think it's jason's first play and and also there's also terminology in like in real that's similar to hiv terminology like if you're z positive you have the zombie virus z negative you don't and then z positive people are like relegated to living outside of this big metropolis and so there's like a lot of you know allegories of discrimination going on here um one and also i want i want to praise you know the direction and the creative cast and just being able to herd that many bodies around on stage and also create like very distinct characters from all of these people is something to be applauded it's great it's ambitious okay so i've I'm a zombie fan. I watched The Walking Dead, and I'm really into Game of Thrones and the ice zombies going on right now. So my issue when it comes to tackling zombie mythology is like you need, it's all big metaphors. Zombieism is a metaphor for which, whatever it is that you're tackling at the time. You know, whether it be like global warming or, you know, or like big, huge pathological diseases are affecting us right now, Ebola, that kind of thing. You, you can make zombies about anything that's happening right this, that's happening right now. At the same time, though, like you cannot like 
weigh your metaphor down so so much and weigh the mythology down so much that it becomes untenable. What I mean is there's a lot of uh, one, there's the zombieism that we're all that we all know about, which is, you know, the eating of the other people. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, there was one stage effect that like yeah. really grossed me out in this play oh, along it was those amazing. lines. <laughs> I was waiting. The effects were very impressive. Oh, yeah. it, it's like, yes, finally, somebody's eating somebody else. That's why I go see a zombie <laughs> flick. I'm sorry, but then you. Uh, but then they, he also incorporated the uh, this hive mind Borg like element into it and turns it into like a computer psychological related disease and so i think but the thing the thing is the backbones of the virus did not hold up and it became and it became way too metaphorical not and not weighted in any in any reality of what a disease like that would manifest itself as it's funny for me i actually kind of mm -hmm. liked that it did that it strayed as far as it did from Feeling because when I read the program before the show started, and it said that this was inspired by like his friends who are um, a couple where one has HIV and one doesn't. I was like, oh god, oh god, I cannot sit through three hours of like hand wringing about that. And the fact that it 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 did actually go pretty far afield from from a a strict HIV metaphor, I felt grateful for. But I hear what you're saying. I think I think if he had kept it to exploring the discriminatory aspect of the diseases and also like how it functioned within the real world as opposed to having this side story about how they're all part of a hive mind and they all communicate with each other and you can and speak think, to the dead exactly <laughs> that once it started getting to like real undead people I just it I, I got lost so I think when it comes to metaphors like choose your metaphors wisely. Like, don't have too many. <laughs> I also, um, seeing this and war within the same week, I had a little bit of a rage against the overuse of the dead mother trope. Um, <laughs> which, like, look, that is the reality of of storytelling for humanity. Like, uh, as long as there have been stories, there's been stories about dead or missing or absent mothers. But, like, I just feel like enough already. And like, look, I have a dead mother. So like maybe I'm a little more attuned to or sensitive for that. But I just like, uh, I feel like unless you have like a really compelling reason for that to be the trope that you're leaning on, like, I don't know, try me a little creative. But that's, you know, I, I don't think it's quite fair to like blame Jason Sanger or Brendan Jacob Jenkins for using the trope that like Walt Disney's been using for 70 years. But like, <laughs> I just it, for whatever reason, like in this play in particular, it, it sort of like caused a little extra eye rolling for me. Well, I agree with you guys. That, I mean, your analysis is exactly mine, so I won't repeat it. I do want to add a couple of things. Um, one, I want to recognize this actor, Debargo Senyal, who played Tool. He is so wonderful. I've seen him in multiple productions um, yeah. in New York City. He's like a working actor who spends a lot of time in the indie theater space i think he's so fantastic every time i see him pop up on stage i'm just hugely relieved because i know i'll at least enjoy walking watching his performance no matter what else is going on i think he's great in this um so i would 
keep an eye out for him and I just I look forward to seeing him in the next thing I think he's fantastic yeah and there's also uh, just just riffing off on his character because the way the characters I the character I saw him last play was in January feels like summer at Ensemble Studios Theater and he was playing a trans woman oh yeah. that's the one I missed of his and I regret that so much because I really wanted to see that play itself mm-hmm. I didn't even know he was in that until I saw but um but, but then his uh body but then way he, like he carries himself like he could very be he could be typecasted as the gay sassy best friend but this play like he was able to play like multiple facets of a character he's like so fully transformed by the end of this play yeah, it was exactly. amazing yeah, yeah. All, all of them were really yeah. so did anyone else see him in Bunty Berman Presents I did I don't remember him. I hated that play so much. I don't remember who he played. But I'm pretty sure he's the character that sticks his head out of the elephant's Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, he was also in Invasion, which is like one of the most amazing theatrical experiences I've had in New York City, which because of a massive spoiler point. So I won't go into it, but that play is amazing, and he was amazing in it. Um, And then the final thing I wanted to um, raise, and, and actually the reason why I thought we should talk about this play in addition to wanting to see it and recognize the artists involved is because Flux Theater is a long time active indie theater company in New York City and I think that um, anytime a, a play of theirs comes up you should you should take a look at it and consider attending um, you know they do some great work um, and I wanted to acknowledge their living ticket initiative which is that all of their shows are free um, you don't have to uh, pay up front for a ticket they publish the budgets in their playbill and then at the end of the show you have the option of paying or not paying and they show you their current uh, what they would prefer to have their minimum uh, budget as and also what they consider their living salary which would be you know the amount of money necessary to pay all the participants a living wage Um, and I think that's fantastic and I think they're to be commended for that effort Um, I'm sure this is a huge struggle for them um, but I, I really admire that I was a little confused by the budget because the minimum budget is more than their actual current budget. So I don't know if minimum means like if they paid everyone union minimums or how that works. But uh, but I agree. I think it's a fascinating initiative. Yeah. Well, I don't think I, I believe it also partially on equity, too. Yeah, I think that um, they have like these asterisks about how they don't pay their creative partners, which they wish they could. Right. Right. And all that stuff. So I'm not sure how it all works together. Um, but as a whole, fantastic. But basically, if you pay money to see their shows, they'll, they'll, they'll give money to the people making the shows. Right. So, you know, give them your money. Yeah, which as a whole, I just wholeheartedly agree with that model. Yeah, And I actually quite like this because um, um, what's the other theater I really love? The one who did um, Taylor Mac and it's Good Person. Uh, oh, Foundry. Foundry, yeah. They also put Similar. the budget of their shows in the program, too. And I just, I just love this transparency because I think when it comes to theater and money it's money is a very dirty thing people don't want to talk about especially when it comes to how much they're paying people and most of the time it's way lower than you would think they, mm-hmm. they're getting paid for so i think that's why a lot of theaters don't do it but at the same time i think if we it's like the more theaters make this available and present within their programs or on their website like the more we can have a conversation about better wages for everyone. Absolutely. Okay, we still have so many things to talk about, so let's do them quickly. Hades Town. Okay, Hades Town. Um, it's a musical by Anais Mitchell, uh, playing at New York Theater Workshop. 
And it's directed by Rachel Chafkin, who will be on Broadway in September for Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And, you know, Rachel also does a bunch of other things. Like, she's the artistic director of the team. She's awesome. I love her. Um, so Hadestown is a folksy bluegrass musical retelling of the tale of Orpheus and Eurydice. And do I need to summarize that? No, don't bother. Okay, awesome. And it's set in the. It kind of looks like the Dust Bowl, but kind of, but kind of hipstery. So it's it, it's some vintage inspired place in the twentieth century, and it's 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 basically sung through and. I had just had to say I love Amber Gray and she's in it. She was also in Natasha Pierre and she just has just she plays Persephone and she always ha whenever she sings like she has she has presence and attitude and even if she doesn't have many very many songs like you can tell like it's a fully realized character with dimension and she just brings so much without even saying anything. So I'm a big fan of her. And okay, what to say about uh, what to say about it? Oh. Hmm. I mean, it's it's good. It's good. <laughs> it's okay. The thing. Okay, I'm gonna say because um, Anais Mitchell had a a profile in New York Times where they talked about like the parallels to today's election, and I feel like whenever we're talking about this kind of work and trying to draw parallels between that and what's going on in today's climate, it's kind of um, it's kind of forced. But at the because there's a song at the beginning, beginning of Act Two where Hades um, talks about like why he wants to build a wall, and so anytime with there, any, anyone any man talking about wall building right now, you gotta be careful. You want to sound like some an orange presidential candidate. But it's I mean it's a it's a good it's a good musical, and I would happily listen to the cast. I, I guess I guess why I'm, the reason I'm struggling to talk about it is the fact that it's it's a Greek tale that doesn't really have that much dimension to it to begin with, and so it's really hard to take that and, and extrapolate it to the the climate that we're living in today. And so I really don't find anything profound with it. At the same time, I had a lovely time. The music was great, and when Orpheus looks at Eurydice at the end, like you know, you really feel that you really feel for the characters. Oh yeah, Deep actually vocalized, "Oh shit!" <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I did that. Oh my god, <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> so they so they build it up really well. They build attention really well. The characters of Orpheus and Eurydice could be built better because I it. You know she's she's leaving him because he's not providing for her, but then they didn't really build up the relationship that well to begin with. So you you weren't, you know, sold on their romantic relationship and marriage, and so the stakes don't feel that high relatively. And I think, and yes, they did it so well that I did go oh shit when he looked at her, but. It was just, it was a really long musical number, and you just really want them to get out of there because it doesn't seem like it's a really nice place to be. But at the same time, if it doesn't happen, it could be worse. Haiti seems like a nice guy, you know? <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't seem that bad. So it's a lovely piece of work. That's all, that's all I got to say about that. Patrick Page and Amber Gray are just tremendous in their roles. Patrick Page is Hades, and um, you already mentioned Amber Gray is Persephone. I think they're both just so good. The thing I couldn't figure out, and 
when you were kind of stumbling deep I, I was I, I kind of stumble when I talk about this play too because in some ways it's it's really basic it like the, the staging is very plain there's almost no props it's it but but tremendous effort was put into the play you know they they gutted New York Theater Workshop and built a whole new staging and and seating area that's three quarters in the round and um I know just based on, you know, casual social media chatter, nothing formal, that that exceptional expense was put towards the sound design um, of this play. And I assume the same goes for the lighting and how challenging that is to do both. It's both in the round, but also just like slightly immersive because um, there are aisles uh, amongst the audience space where many characters uh, walk and and the journey at the end um, when Eurydice and Orpheus are trying to get out of Hades um, is 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 through these uh, this audience audience, through the audience Um, and so you know part of it is like this is just really basic but it's really well done basic but yeah it's really well directed and well staged and immersive in the design it's just but Do because you, it's so basic, yeah. it relies really heavily on the actors. And the actors, I think, are, for the most part, very good with Amber Gray and Patrick Page's huge standouts, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but it also... But but for this very basic but incredibly well-done play, like, you are not spending an insignificant amount of money for a ticket to this thing. Tickets are 100 bucks, And, like, that is a lot of money. And part of me wonders, you know, if that's all going to those actors, then, like, I say totally worth it something sus- I suspect it is not 100% going to those actors um, and part of me feels like there's a little bit of much ado about nothing in the design and the like ex- like the, the effort put towards like creating this original space but although listen at New York Theatre Workshop thing. that theater is designed to be able to do that yes. more than others like they uh, they reconfigure all the time so I don't know that it's quite as the same sort of thing as if like like what they're going to be doing at the Imperial for Natasha Pierre, where like that's a theater that um, like is built in a certain way and to reconfigure it is like a huge undertaking. Like New York Theater Workshop is built to be able to be reconfigured. Yes. Sometimes in the middle of a performance as it was during Scenes for Marriage. Oh, interesting. Because I've never, I've only seen it in the proscenium setup. I didn't really realize that you could actually take the seats out. Yeah, yeah. But it's basic, but it's very well done basic. Yes, yes, agree. It's like lovely, you know, piece of theater. You don't really think or feel too much you just do you think that this show will have more life in new york after this because i know it sold extraordinarily well yes and they did just recently extend it so there are probably tickets still available you haven't seen it david Uh, no you know there have been so many adaptations of orpheus and eurydice in the last few years i'm just i'm just over it i just i can't bring myself to care it's not it's not a myth that i find all that compelling to begin with. I'm Mm-mm. curious if you felt like Eurydice had any agency in this telling because she generally t- doesn't. I think <laughs> she she's doesn't. the most underdeveloped character in the entire yeah. play. Yeah, like yeah. I'll go see, like if someone does a production of Sarah Rule's Eurydice, I'll go see that. But oh, otherwise... I saw the worst production of that. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw a terrible production. Of but that. otherwise, I think I saw two others in the last year or two and like I'm good for now. Okay, fair enough. But I would buy the cast album, though. Very great songs. And there is Very a concept album that's yeah. been out for a few years. You can hear it on Spotify if you're curious. Oh, well, I just want to hear Amber Gray singing sing it. That's basically my selfish endorsement. And one of the... I mean, it, there is one song, the name of which... Damn it. What's, how's it go? The staging of one of the songs is so gorgeous that um, I'm actually going back to see this play a second time. <laughs> wow. So for something basic that you kind of like, you kind of <laughs> didn't like that much. I know, it makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs>
sorry. And, and is it, it the song between? Um, it's the uh, one where the lights swing. Oh, okay. Because I really like the staging of the duets between the 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 male the two couples. The song, the staging for the song "Wait for Me" just mm. it blew me away. I and, and then I listened to that song on repeat on on Spotify. The, the, the concept album is available. Uh, there's not yet. I don't believe been yeah. any announcement of not soundtrack. Yet. Cast album. Cast album. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wish I had a picture of the look David just gave me. <laughs> I'm trolling you on the podcast. I know you are, but you're just making yourself look foolish, so go right on ahead. You're making yourself seem elitist and exclusionary. I'm sorry, you realize it was elitist to call things by their proper names. Let's you know, talk about our next movie. You know movie. what I was talking about? Okay. Um, Mom and Dad, stop fighting. I can't take this. Mom and Dad are fighting. Okay. Um, all right. I want. I'm really excited for the theater Oscars tonight. <laughs> me too. I'm more excited for Game of Thrones, but that's just me. But. I'm excited for Preacher. Um, okay. <laughs> I want to talk briefly. I was trying to do this quickly, but I'm so in love with this dis- exhibit display performance that I could go on for an entire monologue podcast about it. I went to Martin Creed, The Back Door, which I previewed on the preview episode. His his um, art exhibit fills the armory. In the main armory space is a giant screen the size of the armory, you know, horizontally. So imagine how big that is. And on it are these very slow motion images of women who are just standing there. Um, and the camera, like, slowly zooms in on them. And then they slowly open their mouth and they have some kind of food substance in it, um, which is kind of like, I, I, I actually don't know the meaning of this piece. And I, I've thought about it a lot. And I, and I went back a second time because I, I don't know, I'm very much into going back to seeing things over and over again now. Um, but, but that is by far the least offensive like bodily function video in this um, exhibit. But the, the gross out videos are a tiny, tiny little element of the show. Um, I don't actually consider the the large screen thing to be a gross out element, but there are videos of people pooping and of people vomiting, um, and the vomiting videos are the grossest thing I've ever seen in my entire life in an art context. It is so, so, so foul. And the first day I went, um, the the video screens, uh, the smaller video screens are are lined up in a a sort of a series alongside, um, in a separate space from the huge, the you know, the giant screen. Um, and you go along, and some of them are so cute and sweet, and then there's one where these little dogs are running around and funny song plays. There's one around um, this guy, like, smashing up these flowers that I sat... I could watch that thing, like, infinity on loop. It's, like, so sort of, like, purging anxiety and anger. I just... I loved that. Um, there's a... There's a um, one about refu- the refugee crisis, and then there, there's some that are just kind of quirky... Um, but then you get to this one, um, well, the first time I went and saw it, you get to the one of the people vomiting and it's really disturbing and upsetting. And then you get to the one of the people pooping. Um, and then you get to one that's behind um, a parental advisory explicit warning. 
Um, and on that side, it's really weird because it's really mild. It's like watching a medical tape of a penis getting erect and also a breast getting, like a person getting turned on, like what happens to a woman's nipple when she's aroused. I just called those as your arousal video. And uh, that was the first time. But the second time I went back, the vomiting video had actually been moved. And now there was a blank space in the series. And the, that was now running in rep with the arousal video behind the parental warning explicit thing, which I just thought was really amusing. Um, but I also saw um, Martin Creed perform his music twice. Um, the article about this show in the New York Times I think is great. It calls, talks about his art being like, a sort of almost more of a therapeutic experience, which I very much was attuned with. To me, it was like setting all of my sort of like dominant neuroses to music when I saw him perform. Um, there's also some art that you might consider just like more traditionally conceptual. Um, there's like a piano that opens and closes the lid of it. Uh, there's the thing I talked about um, when I previewed it, which is a room where the lights turn on and off. Um, and there's also a room filled with balloons, which I was a little snarky about in the preview because I was like, that just sounds like a a, a ball pit for adults and then actually like I guess not surprisingly like it is super fun to go in the balloon room I went in multiple times I had so much fun in the balloon room I went back to the balloon room on the second visit so like I just the tickets to this are $15 um, Martin Cree's music is available on Spotify as a new album coming out in July that I cannot wait for I did on the second time viewing, the second time I went back, I, for my first time ever, and I hope I don't get arrested for admitting this, like I took my own bootleg. I was I'm so excited to have a copy of this concert. It was so fun. I had a great time. All right, that concludes that. And then deep, uh, we want to hear for Quest of the Missing Slipper. Sleeper. Slipper. Oh, Slipper. Oh, I can't yeah. read my own writing. Sorry. <laughs> Tell us about this crazy show you went to. Well, it's not really that crazy. I mean, in terms of... So I go to a lot of immersive theater shows because my unofficial beat at American Theater is shows in weird places. Because I wrote like a whole big article about immersive theater back in 2013, right when it was really exploding in New York City. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm kind of a proto-expert, a little bit of an expert, who knows. So I, I've been aware of, so it's called, it's part of the production company called Accomplice. It's a series of uh, shows that were, that were based in New York. They're basically scavenger hunts. And you go and, like, you're on a quest for something. You have a goal, and you get, and then you get clues in different locations. And at, at some point, you have to find someone who can, who can give you the next clue. And so you may or may not go up to a random stranger and ask them, and they may or may not look at you weirdly and not know what you're talking about. But that's the fun of it. It's like the uh, the accidental interactions with people who actually live here on the on the way to find the thing that you're looking for. And are you working as a team with your fellow audience members or independently? You're working in, in a team, okay. so it's not as bad. So you can just have someone designate and to go and buy things or find or ask like a, a shop owner for something. Okay. So they've had three shows in New York, and they have two and a, a couple shows nationwide. I believe they they've done it in San Diego and Los Angeles. And they they have two new shows now. One is a bachelorette party. A thing that you can take your girlfriends to, though I did ask they did there there you can men are allowed to come too. So David, if you ever want to go on a scavenger hunt with a bunch of ladies, I totally would. <laughs> and uh, the other one is a children's show. So the one I wow. went to was the Quest for the Missing Slipper, which is the Bachelorette 
party-themed show, which is basically there is a curse, and and you have to find a way to break the curse by getting clue by going to different bars or Chelsea Market or the High Line, different places in New York, and talking to the characters there, and they give you the clue to go to your next destination. So, but is there a performance yeah. element? There is a performance element insofar as you're talking to actors playing characters, but they just happen to be in a bar or on the High Line. Or at one point, you get into a limo and actually, no, a, a van, a limo van. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're driving, and there's an actor in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the front seat who's talking to you the entire time and keeping you entertained. But it's, it's, it's not profound. It's just an anog- and It's just if you have a group of people, uh, prefer- preferably if they're drunk because they do <laughs> offer you free booze and chocolate during the, during the quote-unquote show, then it's, a, it's just a fun way to like, explore some New York landmarks and walk around and get to know people better. And, and it's a fun thing to do with, if you have a large group of people. Yeah, I, you forwarded us the press release, and it is not cheap. It's $1,500 for a private group of 12 to do. I assume there are also individual tickets sold to this? Yes. I don't know how much those are. It's not listed in here. But interesting. Uh, no, they, have a, they found a model that works and that's lucrative, and they also partner with a lot of you know, local New York bars, and so at the end I discovered a, a bar that kind of looks like a strip club, but there's a lot of... Oh, oh well, actually, a bar that looks like a bordello. It's called Madame X, and they have a really good happy hour, apparently, so I think I may go back. So you just discover things you didn't know were there. Delightful. Okay, occasionally on the podcast, we highlight Kickstarters that are interesting, and this one was brought to our attention by contributor Jack. My opinions are my own. I work at the public more. And it is for Belarus Free Theater. Now, if you're not familiar with this theater company, they have been to New York a few times. They are obviously from Belarus. Um, But their founders are actually banned... from being in Belarus, um, mm-hmm. and they live in exile in the UK. Um, they make extremely politically charged theater. They are very, very well respected. Um, the New York City theater critics absolutely adore them. Um, and they are currently working on a new play called Burning Doors, um, which is the story of three different uh, contemporary artists living under dictatorship, um, whose names I will now proceed to absolutely destroy. Um, one is Puts- the Pussy Riots, Maria Alakahina, uh, Russian actionist and political artist Petra uh, Peter Petr. Pavlensky and the incarcerated Ukraine Ukrainian filmmaker Oleg Senstov. Um, so the the play they're working on, the piece they're working on, is about these three artists, and um, I believe that the artists who are not incarcerated are actually involved in the creation of the project. Um, but they're trying to raise approximately thirty thousand dollars to bring their ensemble members who are still in Belarus to London to uh, actually perform the play there. And they have a really fantastic Kickstarter page, a fantastic video. I highly recommend looking at it. They also have some awesome gifts, uh, gifts that, you know, as Kickstarters often do, including this T-shirt um, <laughs> designed by Ai Weiwei that I really, really want, but it costs 50 euros. So I'm going to see what if I can What does a T-shirt like, look like? It looks like um, a stylized hand flipping the bird. It, and it, it, 
and there's a photo of Ai Weiwei in the t-shirt on their Kickstarter page. So anyway, I'll see if I can like cut my food budget for a month and try to afford that. I know when they were here last summer, they also live streamed their performance. So I, even though this is to fund a performance in the UK, it would not shock me if it eventually either comes to New York or comes to the internet. So uh, you know, if you're thinking like, why would I give to something that I won't get to see? Chances are you'll get to see it. Yeah, but this is also such a good cause. I mean, these people are literally doing like the Lord's work. Like this is true activism under an extremely oppressive regime that um, deserves all of our attention and if we have it, our, our resources. Okay, what are we seeing next? I am finally making my way to The Crucible on Broadway, um, and which will be my first time seeing or reading The Crucible, which I'm very excited for, uh, and seeing two off-Broadway musicals this week, Himself and Nora at, Mon- at Minetta Lane, and Liberty, a monumental new musical, which is uh, on 42nd Street. Wait, say the second one? Liberty, a monumental new musical. It has something to do with the Statue of Liberty. Huh, I've not heard of that. There was a, there was a, I don't know if it was a cast album or a concept album released last year with one of the Shapiro sisters who one of them was in Matilda and I think the other one was in one of the other shows with children. Like they're this incredibly talented group of, uh, or family of, of performing children. I think one of them might be in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown right now. I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Cool. Deep, anything? Uh, yeah, I'm not seeing anything this week because I need to I need to go home and sleep, folks. This has been a really long week for me. A break <laughs> is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, having a cold and then trying to pull yourself up to go to a Beyonce concert and then to the theater, it's, such, it's just not the smartest idea in the world. But, and so when I get back and when I stop having a hiatus, I'm going to... I'm seeing the shows at Club Thumbs uh, Summerworks. It's going on right now. Great. They just closed... The first show of the season, um, every An- every angel's Brudo by Ju- Julia Jarko, and the next show is going to be the Tomb of King Tot by Olivia Dufault, uh, formerly um, Eric Dufault. She she transitioned, so that's exciting. And the next one, which I'm really excited for, is To Macho by Ethan Lipton, the new musical directed by Lee Silverman, starring Celia Keenan Bolger, Jennifer Lee. You know. Um, people and I saw a rehearsal the other day and it's really funny and dark but funny which is par for the course and then I'm going to be in DC for a week for the TCG conference it's a theater conference of a thousand people and while I'm there I will be seeing the original list at Arena Stage which is about judge the late judge Antonin Scalia and it is by, I've never heard of the playwright before, but I'm going, I'm going to find it. Uh, it's by John Strand. So that's exciting. And we will see if I have different viewpoint on Scalia after I finish with hmm. that play. Who knows? I'm just revisiting a lot of stuff. And uh, as I mentioned already, I'm seeing Taming of the Shrew tomorrow. I'm going back to Skeleton Crew, going back to Hades Town, And then... I'm finally going to see Universal Robots, the uh, production from Gideon by Mac Rogers, who if you haven't listened to the interview, Mac was just such a delight to chat with. And I thought some of his advice was very profound. So I highly encourage listening to that. I just want to shout out that after this week, I'm going to be in South Florida for a week, staying with my dad in Delray Beach. So if anyone has theater recommendations for that area, please tweet them at me. That sounds fun. Okay. Thank you very much. This was great, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Max Smooth Theater and Performance Podcast. 
If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at M-A-X-A-M-O-O. Deep is at Deep Thought, D-I-E-P-T-H-O-U-G-H-T. David is at It's D Levy, I-T-S-D-L-E-V-Y. And I'm at Lindsay Barron's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. We'll see you in two weeks. Folio Group. Theatrical Media.